I don't know if you've ever been into basketball, but obviously it's massive in the States. And there's a, a, a guy who's really thought of as one of the best basketball coaches there's ever been, a guy called Phil Jackson, who coached uh, the Chicago Bulls when Michael Jordan was playing for them, and also coached the LA Lakers. They won 11 while he was the coach. He, he's won 11 championships. They're equivalent of the Premier League. And so he's really, really well respected. And obviously gets paid millions of dollars to, uh, to shape teams into these formidable winning machines. And just recently, I read a book that he'd written about leadership. And in it, he's talking about leading a team. And I was just fascinated to see what he was going to say was, was the key to leading an effective team. Um, was it going to be about sort of tactics and strategy? Was it going to be about um, knowing where your players are gifted and positioning them in the right places and all that sort of stuff? And he says, the key, this guy who is, who is world class at what he does, he says, the key to a phenomenal team is love. And when I read that, I just thought, there's no way that he's thought that, but he does. And also recently, I came across something similar, which is an interview with a psychiatrist, a sports psychiatrist called Dr. Pippa Grange, who's worked with the England football team. And uh, again, really, really uh, well thought of. She, she spent a lot of her career working in Australian rules football. And she uh, particularly had a really influential role in this team that had, again, won three times their equivalent of the Premier League. And she uh, says something similar, which is that what you want to do if you want to build a brilliant, healthy, thriving team is you want to get them to a point where they really love each other. And so the person that's interviewing is describing this experience they had where they went to this Aussie Rules football team and they were wandering around and they were meeting all these super macho, sort of like 18, 19, 20-year-old Aussie males who were just absolutely ripped and seeing that the way they interacted with each other, that they were like genuinely sort of crying together over something that was hard in one of their lives or, 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 or being vulnerable in another way. And Dr. Pippa Grain, she, she's focused on helping teams get to know one another really deeply. She says, if the whole point is that you play for the person you're next to on the pitch, how can you ever really play for them if you don't really know them? And so she again says, it's about, it's about love. And both of those things just captured me in no small part because I spend a lot of my time thinking about well, how, what, is a, what is a phenomenal church meant to look like? Um, how do we become a healthy church? And, and by healthy church, I'm not talking about church obviously as a building that you go to or a, a service at a particular time on a Sunday, but church as a family that we are a part of. How do we be a healthy church family at Soul Survivor Watford? And that, I want to say, we don't need to really look any further. Love. As, as the absolute foundation of it and as the key. Something will never graduate beyond or, or get beyond. And of course, uh, we don't need to go to Pippa Grange or uh, Phil Jackson for that. Jesus himself says it so plainly and so clearly. And so uh, there's this moment where he has his final meal with his disciples and he's kind of laying out for them some of the key things that he wants them to know before he goes to the cross and before he returns ultimately to heaven. And he says this in John chapter 13. And I kind of imagine this like the coach at the sidelines of the match, you know, outlining this is the tactics, this, this is the strategy. Here's our game plan for how we want to win. And he says this, John 13 verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how he puts it. And and then we see the rest of the New Testament. They're trying to work out what that looks like in in practice, in, in the meat and bones of being a community. And they get it wrong more often than not. And one of my favorite moments where, where, we are, where the, one of the churches is corrected in the New Testament comes in the letter to the Corinthians. The church in Corinth uh, had become enamored in the wrong way with spiritual gifts, and they're having all sorts of arguments about who was the most important of them. And Paul writes to correct them. And as part of that, he kind of says to them, look, you're operating in this way, and I just need to tell you that there is a different way, a more excellent way to operate. And then he uh, launches into this passage on love that I imagine if you've heard it read, you probably heard it read at a wedding. It is the, one of the go-to wedding passages, and rightly so, because it's, of course, a passage about love, and that's what weddings tend to be about. But um, the original context that he was writing it for was not how a husband or a wife are to treat each other, but how we as believers, we as brothers and sisters are meant to treat one another. This isn't about how you treat your partner as much as it's about how all of us are meant to treat the people we're sitting near right now. So he launches into it, and he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing." Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And he goes on. And um, one of the things that captures me about what we've just read is that it's not that Paul is anti the other stuff. You know, he, he says elsewhere, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. It, it, like Paul, Paul says to them, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Paul's all for giving money to the poor. He spends a lot of his time collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he gives his body over to hardship and ultimately to martyrdom. So he's all in for all the other things. They're absolutely central and part of what it is to be a healthy church. But he says, if we do those things and we forget this, that which is most basic, we've done absolutely, at the end of the day, nothing at all. Because what it all comes back to is love. And this is a chance, I think, for us as a church to, to reset and reimagine, and Mike's been sharing vision over the last few weeks, who is God calling us to be as Soul Survivor Watford? Who is he calling us as a church family to be? What do we want people in the community to say about us? And I've got all sorts of things I would love them to say, and some of it's what Paul just mentioned here. I'd love people to talk about Soul Survivor Watford as a place where you encounter the supernatural power of God. Oh, Soul Survivor Watford, I've heard about that. That's that place where they pray for you and stuff happens. I, I would love people to talk about Soul Survivor Watford as somewhere where you can go if you're struggling and you meet help in the most practical way. Or to speak of our church as somewhere where it's like, you know what, you, you turn up there and it's like you just see that they believe what they're saying. It's not just lip service, but they're all in with their lives as well. Um, but... Ultimately, 
What we really want, what, what is even more fundamental than all of that, is for someone to say, Soul Survival Watford, I've heard of that place. That's the place where if you go, you're loved. That's that place of love. And, and I've been um, personally just dreaming about what sort of a church do we want to continue to be. And my answer I've come down to, just off the back of this passage, is a church that's known. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing to be part of a church that's known for the quality of its love. And I think to a large extent, we already are. And I've never been personally part of a more loving community than the one that I'm a part of here. So it's not let's change direction, but it's just let's continue in this direction even more so. And, and as, if we have that as our aim, make love your aim, if that is our aim, one of the things that, that I've been recognizing in myself is that there are obstacles to that. You know, that makes my heart sing to think of, of giving myself to becoming part of a church where we're known for the quality of our love, where that is our reputation. But, but there are challenges along the way. And the standard that Jesus sets is a high one. So he doesn't just say love each other. He says love each other as I have loved you. That's the standard. The love that we've received is the love that we're to give. So that's hard. And just um, a couple of obstacles, a couple of challenges that may well interrupt us as we seek to be known for the quality of our love. Here's the first one. Consumerism. Uh, we are shaped by the culture that we're born into. And that's just the reality of it. If somebody's born in, in India, then they grow up learning the language, obviously, and eating the food, but also it, it, imbibing the values. Uh, if someone was a teenager in the, in the 80s or in their 20s in the 80s, they grew up in a culture where it was affirmed that you should have a perm and wear a, a shell suit. And everyone thought that was really cool because that was the culture. You, you pick it up almost without even realizing it. Uh, we all do. And so it's just helpful to acknowledge that and be aware of that. We, we take on in many ways the shape of our society. Well, we're living in a consumer society. And so how do we think that's shaping us? Because it, it will be. What are, what are the currents happening beneath the surface that we can't always see that are pulling us along and, and where are they taking us? And um, in a consumer world, everything is really about how does this meet my needs, my desires? How does, does this satisfy me? And if it doesn't, I will take my business elsewhere. That's, that's like a consumer mentality. And uh, we're educated into that. And when we think about this, of course, there's a phrase that sometimes gets bandied around, being consumer Christians. I don't know if you've heard that before, but I have. And whenever I think of someone being a consumer Christian, do you know who I think of? Someone else. It's not me. But what I've been, been realising, um, just as I've reflected on, on, on everything recently, is actually I need to start to look for where is that going on in my spirit? Where is that going on in my heart? Not just next to me, but in the mirror. Um, and as part of that, it's probably helpful to consider the effect that the pandemic and all the implications of it have had upon us. So um, for the last 18 months or so, not exclusively, but predominantly, we have been forced to do life more than ever from a device, from one of these. 
And so uh, one of the things that that's done with our engagement with church, and this is not a criticism if you're watching church online at the moment. There's, we love, as Mike said, uh, apart from if you should be in bed, people, people watching and joining us from other places, it's a real privilege. Um, but it's something for all of us, whether we're watching online or we're, we're here in person, to be aware of is when we switch from church being something we turn up to, uh, where we participate to it, and it had to be for a long time, and for some people still for really valid reasons, it does have to be. But when we switch it to being something we do online mainly, then it's, it, it, the, the risk is we can go from it being about participation to it being about observation and just watching from a distance. Um, think about it like this. I, uh, one of the apps that I downloaded during deepest darkest lockdown was Deliveroo. Has anybody else downloaded Deliveroo? Can I have a show of hands? Uh, there's a few of us. Mike's got two hands up. Um, but Deliveroo, I, and there, there were, I, I got to a point in, in just the grayness of it all that I was like, there are some problems only a Chinese takeaway are going to solve. Um, and Deliveroo is a dangerous app to have on your phone, isn't it? Because you have right there at the click of a button an entire swarm of Deliveroo drivers who will literally cycle mopeds, car their way to your house with any food from Watford. Anything you desire, it can arrive at your front door. And you don't even have to with Deliveroo. Just have one type of takeaway. You can be like, I'm going to have a McDonald's milkshake. I am going to have a Nando's chicken. And I'm going to have a waffle from that dessert place. And that will be my meal. And more than that, with Deliveroo, you can then rate every aspect of that meal. So you can rate the Deliveroo driver for how well they drove and whether they were socially distancing when they arrived at your door and whether they smiled at you through the face mask. You can rate the restaurant for the quality of the food and the speed with which it was prepared. You can even rate the app that you're rating them on. The entire Deliveroo experience is available to be rated. So it's this glorious, wonderful, and incredibly dangerous thing to have on your phone. And without realizing it, we become this big spider at the center of a web that revolves around me. Now listen, I still use it. So it's not like I'm saying, let's no longer use Deliveroo. I'm just saying, let's be aware of the culture we're a part of. It's very tempting for me to turn to my wife on a Friday night and say, what do you fancy? Should we have a look and see what's on the menu? And there is a risk, and I'm not saying you do this, but there is a risk for all of us, and I put myself head of the list, that we turn to one another in a world of online church, and we say on Sunday, what do you fancy today? Should we have a look at the menu? Should we go for some worship from Bethel? They do good worship. Where should we go for the talk? Why don't we go to HDB for the talk? Oh, where should we go for the notices? Anywhere but Mike. Let's just go anywhere but Mike for those. And, and it becomes something where our mentality, our mentality with church becomes about a service that we consume rather than it being a family we belong to. 
And this is a time just to check our souls and our spirits before him. Lord, have I, have I, have I, have I drifted too far on that one? So consumerism is one challenge. Here's the second one. As we aim to be even more so a, a local church family where we love one another, right? Here's the second challenge that we can come up against, the second obstacle, cynicism. And, you know, it's possible to hear a talk about being a church of love and feel nothing but um, a kind of a jadedness about that because we have been part of church and we've been uh, treated in the opposite way. You know, we've been nothing but hurt. And when, when we're hurt, it's very easy to, to, to then withdraw. And I've seen it happen uh, time after time after time. Somebody gets hurt in a church or they get hurt by something somebody said. They've misunderstood or it's been genuinely terrible. And obviously, as a result of that, they've ended up disillusioned. But then what's happened is rather than leave the church, they've stayed, but they've left it in their spirit. And so in their heart, they're kind of very much on the edges. And that's such a, um, it's not a place we want to live from. Because cynicism, what it does is it kills faith. It kills expectancy for what God can do. It kills hope. And it means that we end up sitting on the sidelines. And our only contribution is our, our snipey remarks with an ironic twist. And we end up we end up doing ourselves a disservice because we, we almost by choice exclude ourselves from the richness of community. And we do the community a disservice because we don't give ourselves to them. And cynicism is something that if you find a struggle, I, I can relate to you on it. But if, if church has become for us something we critique more than a family we belong to, then we've lost our way. And we need to ask him to help us find it back. So those are two obstacles. But just to come back to almost the positive picture that Jesus gives us for how we love, as I have loved you. What might that look like? Uh, one of the first things that I think that looks like is showing up. Showing up and turning up. And again, just to underline, for some that can't come to church right now, watching at home, um, for really, really good reasons. So that's not, it's not an attack. Um, but just for all of us, whenever it's possible, let's, let's allow ourselves to choose to be present in family and present in community. Uh, uh, um, it's an invitation Jesus gives us and it's an opportunity, I feel like, for all of us to take hold of. And this, this is a transition season again. You know, we've gone through all sorts of ups and downs, but we're now transitioning again back out of lockdown, hopefully for the final time, but we'll see. Um, but as part of any kind of transition, what happens is we, we reassess our priorities. And we do that even if we don't have conversations about what are our priorities for the next few months. We, we just choose to make decisions. Some things we, we, we've put down and we don't pick up again and other things we do. We choose to take them back up again. And so as part of that, it's a great thing to ask the question with, with my local church and my church family, whether it's your local church here in Watford or you're a part of one in New Zealand, and with my local church, how much of a priority is me being involved in family and community going to be? Because unless we choose to prioritize, it won't happen. One of the things I've noticed about the spiritual life is we have this wonderful tendency to over-spiritualize it, when in reality, so much of it is very, very practical. 
So I've been wrestling with how do I, you know, as a father of four little boys, how do I raise my kids to know Jesus for themselves? Big question for me. And uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but I've been trying to work it out. And one of the things that Mike challenged me to do, so we've been doing it for the last few months, is, is every morning at breakfast now, I get the four boys, wrestle them into their seats, and then we get out the Jesus Storybook Bible, just for a few minutes. And I read them a little bit of the Jesus Storybook Bible, and then we, we try and pray together. And I know even as I say that, well, I think even as I say that, that makes me sound pretty holy. That makes me sound like a pretty good parent. Um, but that's where you actually would need to be there to realize the reality of it is so far from that. It's like Zachary screaming his head off just because he is. And Caleb is crying because he got Weetabix, even though he asked for Weetabix five minutes ago. He's now changed his mind. He wants porridge. And Judah, I ask him a question about Jesus. He starts talking about Lego Ninjago. And Josiah is staring off into the distance, dreaming about the Beano. So it's, it's the opposite of like a deeper meaning it doesn't feel like that most of the time. But it, we, we're trying to find really practical ways of saying to our kids, hey, we're a family and we gather around Jesus. We're a family centered around him. Well, if that's true for me having to educate a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, a one-year-old, you know, how much is that true of their own inner child that lives in us that needs to be discipled and matured and grown? For us to say to that part of us that would really rather stay home, hey, we're choosing to be present. And we're going to make a practical commitment to do that. And as well as, as turning up, there's, there's one step further, which I'll leave you with, which is this, is trying to find a way of showing love. Of showing love. I know that is so obvious. It's almost like, why are you saying it? Um, but for me, it's been a journey that I'm still on of discovering the truth of this. So I, I came across an interview with a family psychologist a little while ago, and he was asked the question, is everybody born with the capacity to love? And his answer was, yes. And so the follow-up question was, well, if that's true, then why don't we have more love in the world? To which he replied, even though we're born with the capacity to love, we need to learn to show love. We need to learn how to show it. I used to think I did it instinctively. I've realized that's not true. Um, when I got married, probably the main area of tension in our marriage was that we, we, we knew this before, but you know, you really know it when you've made the vows and it's too late, um, that uh, Beth is a massive extrovert and I am a major introvert. And so we would have, most of our clashes would have around the fact that she wanted to invite the whole world over to our house and I just wanted to sit in a room alone. And we would have arguments about this all the time. And I remember there was one time where I was just really sort of so frustrated that Beth had dared to invite some people around to our house. I was like, oh, I don't understand. And you don't get me. And it's because I'm an introvert. You don't understand that I'm an introvert, you know, and I'm not like you and I need time by myself. And, I, you know, I'm heading off back to my room to carry on reading my books. And uh, I remember really what I was doing at that particular moment was I was just using introversion as an excuse. I just can't be bothered to see these people. What's really going on? But what I said was I'm an introvert. So I'm heading off back to my room to be with my books and I remember Beth shouted up at me as I went back who are you going to love when you're in there by yourself and my honest answer at the time was C.S. Lewis 
because that guy is incredible. I'm Narnia, oh my word. But, but uh, I realized I wasn't really what she was asking. And, and it's like, you mean, you mean I actually have to show people I love them? Because I don't know if I've got more capacity for self-deception than you do, but literally I was like, I love Soul Survivor Watford. I love all people. There is no one in the world I do not love. But I'm just going to sit here in a room by myself knowing that I love them rather than actually doing anything to show them. And for those of us who are part of this church, you know what? It's like, I'm sure you love us as I love you. But what I've been challenging myself is, how am I going to show you that? What will that look like for me? And it isn't, this isn't some veiled attempt to get everyone to sign up to serve on a team. We'd love you to do that, but it's not at all that. It's not at all that. You know, it's, it's kindness. Love is kind. You know what the world needs more of? That. There's a quote from Mother Teresa that, that I just love, and I'll, I'll finish with this. As we consider what sort of a church we want to be, what do we want to be known for? Um, she says this. Three things in human life are important. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. And Jesus invites us to be part of a community that loves as he does. I, I just desperately don't want to spend my life sitting on the sidelines of it for whatever reason. And I would encourage you with everything I've got to come all in, in every way, uh, that we might love one another and that we might reflect his love to the world who hasn't met him yet.